Hello and welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited, as I always am, to have my guest on today, Miss Jill Drader. How are you, Jill? Really good, thank you. So good to have you on. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've read like, don't spend five minutes at the beginning, talk about how you know each other. But we have, uh, you know, the rule of podcasting, get right into it so the audience doesn't get <laughs> sidetracked. But you and I have crossed paths indirectly, directly. It's Calgary. It's a small world. I'm really excited. I've heard you speak a few times. I, I, I love your story. I love the passion and the power in which you tell it. It was the opportunity to have you on the show and just have a good old fashioned conversation. Um, I feel very lucky to have you on today. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What I'm looking most forward to is you're the person who can take that story to the next level. And you've oh, asked me you. questions that others don't ask about it. And I'm really looking forward to diving into that. Oh, the, the challenge <laughs> it has been laid out, folks. Enjoy. Sit back. Make yourselves comfortable. It's going to be a good conversation. So let's start, let's start at the top. Uh, or, uh, what, are you, what are you up to right now? What are you the most excited about? What are you passionate about? And then let's talk about all the things that accumulated along the way to get you to where you are. But what gets you excited these days? What are you working at? I've come back to my heart center to do work that serves other people and do it in a way that I'm not scared to monetize this time. And I think I spent the first decade of my career wanting to make movements and give people stories and be this disruptor and change maker. And I thought I had to be behind the scenes of everything. And very intentionally, I was. And the result of that was that I ended up not having control of what I was doing. And when it was time, which I call the spiritual two-hand shove, where you've been, <laughs> you've been hearing... Both hands in the center of your back. <laughs> yeah. Nice. You've heard a couple times. Shove. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've heard a couple times to make changes and pivot. And you're like, no, 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 not yet later. No, it's okay. No, I'll just keep going with it. Maybe I'll try it a different way. And what you're hearing is like, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. But that ego attachment doesn't want you to separate from mm. it, even though you know. And so the spiritual two hand shove though, is like, even though you know, yeah. even though you know, and the spiritual two hand shove is that it's, it's, uh, you know, to use a hockey metaphor, like my kids are all the time. It's a cross check from behind. You didn't see coming and you face plant and then you got to pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm building now is very intentionally woven into who I am and what I do. And owl seek is the name of this body of work I'm putting out. So owl seek is a program that is seven spiritual principles on your path to leadership. And that came out of analyzing 65 journals I've kept since I was eight years old. So at the beginning of COVID, I ended up newly separated on the path to divorce in my own house, isolated alone with all the boxes from my parents' basements, the cellar at my other the, the storage cellar at my other house, and the ones that I had. And I I put together all these books that I didn't actually know was a series of my life. And I started at eight years old and I dove into them. And what I realized is I've been writing affirmations and methods and ways for myself to get out of these big things that happened. And what I identified was over and over, I was writing on this path to become more conscious in myself, to get to that place of knowing trusting my intuition. And it was a journey from fear to love. And it's seven spiritual principles to a life of certainty. So knowings was the first piece that came out. I've been asked for two decades to turn parts of my life story into a book. And I honestly was like, for what? Like, who wants to read a memoir? Like I, you know, they end up 300 pages of 
details of grandma's jewelry box. You know, like you lose me there. So I never wanted to do that. But this came down actually with this painting behind me. Um, This is in my writing room and I would sit in the chair across and I realized this like center. Um, It's kind of the sunburst and it's the center. And at the center of everything is the knowing, the intuition. And I thought, where did we lose turning intuition into a verb? I intuit, where we have the power to know. And I was talking about this, sharing it. I work with people one-on-one. I do a lot of spiritual direction counsel where people come to see me. They want to keep it a secret. They're going through big things. And I will either tie it back into their faith, their belief system. I do a non-denominational practice with that. Um, I also incorporate tools like tarot and different intuitive tools. And I'm able to tell people, I see what they don't see. But what I'm able to see is what they know they didn't know. But they know. <laughs> and so knowings became the name for the first body of work. And that's my book coming out. So that goes from fear to love, seven spiritual principles to a path of certainty. And it goes from fear to pride to courage to knowings, which is the intuition heart center. And then the next part where I believe it only takes one breath to understand these next three principles forgiveness, grace, and love. And this came out of a seed planted in me as a child where the phrase was, and it's biblical, love thy neighbor as thyself. And I think for two decades, probably three, I ran around, love the neighbor, love the neighbor, love everybody, do this. And as thyself, those three words. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So when my marriage ended, it ended in a way that there was a relationship I didn't know about. We had been living as roommates. Like, let's be honest, this happens. And, And then careful what you wish for. It moved on to the next. And it just so happened to be in a way that he found another relationship. And that phrase came to me the moment I found out about that relationship. First, I heard, this will be as hard as you make it. And the second thing I heard was, if you truly believe in forgiveness, grace, and love, then in one breath, you exercise that. Hmm. And I believe the spiritual two-hand shove comes in two ways. So it comes in and through us as something that is planted in our, in our mind knowing, or it comes in and through our heart center where we feel it first. Grace is all about feeling. Forgiveness is about the letting go. And love is about letting it in. And in, in that breath, I believe, that is really the true surrender. So I started talking about this, and I wanted to be more in the corporate space, and I wanted all the men who were coming to me whispering that, They wanted to do this, but don't tell anyone. Could they come on a retreat, but not make it public? Could you work with me, but don't share any photos? And I was like, what is this masculine secret thing that they want it, but they don't want to align with it? This was for years. This this was happening for me. So then I thought, okay, what if I take these seven core principles from fear to love, and I turn it into a program that goes from control to leadership? So instead of fear, it's called control. Oh, good marketing tactics, Jill. And instead of pride, <laughs> it's called pride. Instead of courage, yeah, yeah. Well, it's called courage. <laughs> Knowings is the heart center of it. It's to know, but it's a value-based knowing. So when you're in a yep. place of leading or managing, um, are you coming from a place that aligns with your values or are you just puppeteering the pride uh, mask that you're supposed to do? And then on the other side of it is this transformation. So the forgiveness, grace, and love is more of a 
Forgiveness is about co-creation. So what are you calling in to work together to push through? Because you don't know by yourself. So this is about team building on this side. And then the grace part is what are you willing to shift? And that means surrender and let go. And then the leadership piece is to invite in this new way of looking at the team as a whole, yourself as a whole, your company as a whole. So that body of work right now I've taken. Okay. Joe, I have so many questions. The one I'm going to ask, which is the first of many, you use the word spirit a lot. So what yeah. I'm curious about is your journey, your individual, back to your own individual journey and keeping these journals, the, the journey of journals since 65 journals, since you're eight years old, when did the concept of spirit and there's, and we'll even get to how you can define that. And I think everybody mm-hmm. can define it in their own way and still be right. When did that concept of spirit or spirituality or access to spirit, either spirit inside self or spirit, which is access to something bigger than all of us, universal consciousness, all the different ways, when did spirit start playing a role in your life or become consciously a part of you referencing it? Or has that always been there along the journey? No. Um, I was raised in a Mennonite community. So Mm -hmm. we had a very formal religious belief system where I call it appease the grandparents, access the section of Sunday clothes in the closet, and cry through putting on pantyhose. Like that's what I remember church as. Aside from pantyhose, I do remember I I went to (laughs) Sunday school every Sunday and it was a fight every time. I didn't put on pantyhose, was the only thing that was different. We had to appease the grandparents. And this was a gender divide is like women wear dresses and men. don't so very specifically okay very small farming communities around where i grew up old order mennonites are very common around where i grew up my maiden name is martin when you go through saint jacobs ontario the markers at the end of the lanes of the old order farms have that last name on it so Mm -hmm. i reflect on my roots and it's it's very i just love the pacifist um nature of what it is and at the same time closed communities that are religious become these um, doctrines of telling and the person at the front tells how it should be Doctrine of telling. That's such a great statement. Anyway, sorry, go yeah. on. Like I, lo- I love that so much. <laughs> and I when I drive so around rural Alberta near Lethbridge and see all the colonies, they're doctrines of telling. I go buy eggs and meat from this one place and they make the women and children run into the buildings. They're not allowed to be outside. That's a doctrine of telling. Um, that is not being, that is not feeling, that is not co-creating, that is not transforming. That is none of the things that I believe are the essence to that consciousness place of love. So when I moved here, I was 13 years old and my parents had decided they were going to split. So with that meant no more church. We do not have to keep going to church because we've moved away from the extended family that we were just, in my opinion, doing this to appease. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we came out here and my dad moved back to Ontario to fly. Um, Shortly thereafter, he was flying with Air Canada, so he had to be located there. And my mom stayed out here and started a new relationship pretty quick. And uh, each of my parents have been remarried for 25 years. They found their person thereafter. Mm. But that transition as a 13-year-old is hard. You lose your dad. He goes across the country. He married somebody much younger. My mom married somebody much older, kind of the same gap, just on either side for them. Interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a new journey for my brother and myself. It's also where I started being completely on my own and exploring the world. And that's when I was getting exposed to men too young because I didn't know people followed me because of my face. Like I have stories of being 14, 15 years old of, of not knowing what was happening. And now I can think back and people were following me or grabbing me or saying things to me. And I didn't know what it was. I came from such a small place. And 
with that, though, the curiosity turned to drug use pretty early. And so with that, the mind goes different places and you start to wonder and have curiosity. So, you know, I'm reading all about this microdosing and exposure with mushrooms and people are like, have you tried it? I'm like, oh, my God, I was 14 years old, like tripping out of my mind, having these experiences, not knowing what it was, but it shaped me. So things started to be seen differently. At 16 years old, everything changed. I was at Henry Wisewood High School and there was a teacher, uh, Miss Baxter. She was the psychology teacher and she was also a psychic medium intuitive. She was a speaker at the Center for Spiritual Living. Um, and she introduced me to the words that I know today. Um, my book starts out talking about how at 16 years old, this teacher invited me over on a Saturday and I couldn't tell my parents and I was given the address on a piece of paper and she was going to teach me this spiritual practice. And I knew I couldn't tell my parents. And I snuck to the house and I went in for this reading. And that's the first time I saw tarot cards on a table. That's the first time I heard the words past life regression. That's so interesting, like the risk that she took as a teacher, you know, in a traditional system. Like there's so many layers just to that alone. And it sounds like there was a good ending to it. Like that that story could start and go in a bunch of different directions. Well, you know, the people in my graduating class are the people who came from John Ware, who had the teacher who was sexually assaulting them. Yeah. And he mm -hmm. shot himself in the head recently because it all's come to a head. So those people are, were in my graduating class, like who knew that yeah. story. So yeah, Vers are, it was a risky time. the other direction time. of that story, yeah, right. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not um, unknown to me, but she was sipping something that wasn't water. And I picked that up right away too. It was 10 a.m. though. She had this corner unit and it overlooked Fish Creek. And she started telling me all about the connection of spirits and animals and she did my first tarot reading and I have it written. I wrote everything and she recorded it on cassettes and then I transcribed the cassettes. And so that was my introduction into that side. Then with this like life where I was using MDMA and cocaine by the time I was 16, I was drinking all the time. I was smoking weed every day. I was still going to high school and um, I was exploring this world of new age and the metaphysical. So I think when the word spirit came in is when I started to explore what is all this mythology and folklore and what are all these stories of the past and how did spirits come in? I also think I always knew spirit was not soul. And I think that was a really mm, big 20-year okay. journey for me to be like, the way I see it is like our soul is like the highest level. And underneath that is this like veil. Um, if we think about writing, like doing veils or circles around, let's say, the globe. Um, mm -hmm. So the biggest one, our spirit, is underneath that. And that's the kind of the gray area where I think people see ghosts. That's the gray area where I think things get moved. Um, I've had these experiences. I believe if you put your energy to something, you will find it. I have been able to move pendulums with my mind, just focusing on them, um, on a standing rod. So all of the seeds she planted, I tested. Um, that said, without guidance. <laughs> so I went pretty While far. The, the influence of psychedelics in a very early stage mm -hmm. of your neural development, which mm -hmm. is a whole other thing to itself, right? <laughs> yeah. And throwing myself in the arms of men very inappropriately because that's where I found comfort and belonging. Mm -hmm. And so all of these influences then led to a very confused 18-year-old. And I decided 
I should go to India. So I graduated high school. I wore like a five-piece sari to my graduation. Even though I didn't graduate, I was three credits short, but I planned the grad party, so I had to go. Um, <laughs> and, and I didn't and, tell and anyone. You, and, you had, and you'd already picked out your outfit, so you did what <laughs> yeah, I get. Exactly. It. I get it. And like we had a big two-day bender planned. Like I had to be there. So Yeah, of, of course, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but then I was in this place where everybody was doing the same thing. They were going to post-secondary. And I had no idea what I would do. I didn't have parents who checked in on me for my report cards. I didn't have parents who talked to me about pathways to post-secondary. They were in their own honeymoon phases, really. And it's an observation. It's not a criticism. Like, I look back and I go, yeah, they did the best they could with what they had at the time. They did the best they could with what they thought we needed. Um, They did the best they could with parents who didn't go past grade five education. Well, back to your forgiveness, you know, grace and love, those individuals, those humans, sometimes ourselves, we made the best decision available to us at the time with the information that we had. And there's a lot of forgiveness, grace and love, even in that. And again, applying that to others is one thing, applying it to yourself is another thing. But I appreciate that comment of, Mm -hmm. oh, why, why, why? They didn't, they they did the best they could in the time that they did it with the beliefs and the demons that they still themselves hadn't, hadn't resolved. And uh, I heard one the other day, it's never too late to have a good childhood. Uh, I think yeah. it was Gabor Mate said it. And I loved it because of how much forgiveness and permission was like laced into that comment. Miss <laughs> Baxter used to say, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. Do I have to grow up? <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was this like, as a kid, that was like, what? Well, yes, there's these milestones and linear pathways set out in front of you. And she was also like the one who was <laughs> in her like Ford Taurus, one leg up, high heels on. She was a heavier set woman. Big makeup, big nails, big hair. Everyone was scared of her. And I was like, oh, who's that? Um, and she'd stand there smoking. Like, we're all in this, like, yellow line at the smoke pit. Like, all, like, little paddle curled, <laughs> curled in there. And she'd just stand outside and, like, she didn't care. Um, when I got back from India, so I went zero, for... Zero, zero fucks. <laughs> yeah. I went away for about six months at 18 years old. I went to Europe for a bit and then India. And when I came back, Um, My parents had owned a coffee shop in the neighborhood and I sat down and I flipped open the Calgary Sun and her obituary was the first thing I saw. And so coming back, I went to her funeral and I heard things like, because I just listened there. I didn't know who her friends were and I was so much younger, but there's this massive mix of people there. And they were talking about how she had planned the ending. There was comments like, the celebration of life was on the printer and I was very confused like about do you take your own life or do you die do you know when you're dying and this became the next journey of the quest on spirit and spirituality is like what is this death thing because her poem on the back was like I'm never gone I'm always in the next room call on me whenever you want I'm always here and I was like what is that (laughs) and so that became the next piece of like Are they all near me? Are the bad ones near me? How do I make sure the good ones are near me and not the bad ones? What is the bad? What is this word shadow self? What is the dark side? Mm. What is the new age dark side? Um, What are demons? Why why, why are witches so scary to me? Like I have never aligned with the word witch or witches. And this is this like path of new age, metaphysical, spiritual connection. But the casting of negativity to others 
in my soul never aligned with me, the spell casting. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that. So then I was on this journey of like, well, what are they all called? Where do they all come from? Um, do they all talk to God? Is God even real? You know, like, all that. What, what, what is God? <laughs> yeah. Curious, just your trip to India, you kind of skipped over it. Uh, yeah. How long did you go? How long did you go for? That first time I went for three months. I'm just, I'm just curious. This is, I don't know. Again, I'm just rolling with the questions popping in my mind. Was that like getting away from, or was that going towards? Were you going towards that experience? Or were you just getting away from, I don't know, all my friends are going to post-secondary, like I'm out of here. Or, or was it, uh, you know, away from towards question, I guess is what I'm asking. The books I found very young were about like refugee camps and like women in mm-hmm. um, Islam and Arab traditions. Like I read these books about these women who were daughters of Saudi families and like their brothers used to give them puppies and then take them on drives and throw them out the window so they could watch them die. And they would be promised these things and then have them taken away. And so I was so curious about the other side of the world. So being hmm. young and naive, like that all, that was all the other side to me. Um, and as a kid, I always wanted to be, I wrote in my journals, like at 12, 13 years old, like I want to be a nurse in a refugee camp in Africa. That was the draw. Um, the first time I saw a needle being injected into someone, I was like, nope, like that will not be my career. So, <laughs> <laughs> <You got it. laughs> so then, but that never <laughs> left me that, that there was something calling me towards. Um, later, through a program in recovery, um, where there's some literature I align with, there's this thing that's called geographical cure. And it really makes sense in retrospect. So was I running away from? For sure. Trying to find a geographical cure to this inner disposition of discontent. I've had I a can, few friends and I said, well, you know, the challenge is whenever you get to where you are and you look in the mirror, you're still there, right? And that is the challenge. And I've had a few, like, I'm going to move to the coast and I'm going to yeah. move here and I'll solve my problem. Six months later, <clears throat> it didn't because surprise, surprise, unfortunately, the, the wounded you is still with you. <laughs> it's still, Everywhere it traveled, you go, there you it, are. It traveled, it traveled with you. Everywhere you go, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate I was just curious. I appreciate that. Hmm. So- it did open me up to racism. It did open me up to being the one that's totally different from everyone else. It mm. did open me up to how it feels to be followed and stared at in a group. And while I didn't expect that, those were the greatest learnings for me as mm. a person that like this is not just about you, Jill. And even though I was 18, I knew very much, like, don't bring your white privilege here. Um, however, there were things that I did apply to escape, go to nice hotels, go for lunches in air-conditioned places. Um, I was in Gujarat, which is a dry state, and I found where the bootleg alcohol was. Like, all the important things. Um, <laughs> At that time, so- <laughs> I understand. I understand. It's all relevant. Yeah, I get yeah. so always been a little bit of a hustler. Always been a little bit of a fixer. And, um, so India taught me, I went the second time and the girlfriend I went with, she had to leave. She didn't have the same experience. And she said, you know, it rips your heart out and then puts it back exactly where it needs to be. And I've never forgotten that sentiment because that's what it did for me. It showed me what my heart is because my heart had been so wounded from like divorce of parents and not understanding that I was going into these codependent, attached, obsessive relationships um, because that was my nature and I didn't know how to manage it. 
So all I knew is like, I felt crazy. And all I knew was I lost everything. And all I knew was the things that want to attach onto me sound stable and I don't want that. So I better. Yeah. Trauma, the, 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 what happened to you versus <laughs> what's wrong with you. You use the yeah. words, you know, you've said mind, you've said soul, you said heart. Even how do you, how do you interrelate those? And again, there's so much heart math and what the brain versus the heart and the gut feel and the different like intuitive and knowledge centers. How do you align with all of those when you think about uh, stacking them all up? And I'm being very formal, but you mm-hmm. <laughs> stack them all very linear way for me to say it. But yeah, how do you interrelate those together? Like the comment of heart versus soul versus mind versus, versus gut versus intuition. Very simply, we come into the world with a breath. We leave with a breath. I believe the soul is our breath. That soul is given to us. It is not ours. The soul is what fuels mm. the body. The soul is what is in this car called the body here on earth. And it is what fuels the mind, um, the body and the soul is something. It. It's the to soul having a human care. experience, not the other way around, right? The soul yeah. is just transitioning through this human experience, which is the car, which is the body. Yeah, no, I know. I've heard that recently a few times. It was, it's resonating with me when you start to think of soul and spirit, even at a very different level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think if we, because, you know, we've been given this doctrine telling in the West. So let's make it a triangle telling, and let's call it telling. body, mind, and soul. Um, And I believe around that triangle then is the circle of spirit because spirit can influence the mind in a way where it keeps logic on track or takes it off. I believe that, and that's spirit, that's not soul. Spirit can derail you. Spirit can take you away. Um, Spirit is the Holy Spirit part of Catholicism. It's that, it it is that other layer that they talk about. Um, I don't align with it. I don't believe it. Like that is, like let's let's put that in capitals. The doctrine of telling. Is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I. Yeah. Very well, so, and it's it's it stood the test. It's very it's a very well put together system. If we want to think about that way of of control and power. So it being in recovery. That's a though, whole other podcast, Jill. <laughs> yeah. A whole other podcast. Being in recovery and being really called to people dying. Like this is the truth about me. I'm called to help people with death, and I didn't know that, but I'm comfortable with death. I have found. So many bodies, Tyler. Um, and I believe my soul is that is a weird, that that is a weird to thing to have, to have a history of. Like, just, to, just like, I don't want to skip over that. I have found yeah. so many bodies. I would guarantee the majority of people, um, hopefully, or not otherwise, listening to this have, cannot share that. That's a really powerful statement. Uh, and being and okay with it and understanding why it was happening versus WTF, why is this happening? I, I'm assuming there was a few of those moments along the way. <laughs> yeah. I like to call WTF, where's the faith? Because if you ask what the fuck, you also have to ask, where's the faith? And I think that, so this one experience was at the Walmart down here. Write that down. (laughs) I believe this uh, one experience was at Walmart on McLeod Trail and Southland Drive. And I got Mm -hmm. in my vehicle after returning the cart and I just felt, I hear things. And it was like, Jill, go back. And I was like, to the cart thing? Yes, Jill, go back. To the cart thing? Yes. And I went and there was a man there and he was like in rigor mortis overdosed um, from opiates Hmm. because they came and tried naloxone and it worked for a second and then it didn't. Um, I had naloxone in my vehicle. I tried it also Um, for 22 minutes. Nobody would come out of the Walmart to help or make a call for help. Um, I was there alone for 22 minutes with this man and I couldn't even get him open to do CPR. Cause I couldn't, his body was so tight. 
And then the fire department came and I just had to go. Um, and then I called and they said, yes, he passed away. And I was like, why was I called? And then I just think it's to make sure his mom knows he's okay. Um, I had another experience where I met a man in recovery. I'd moved back from Korea. So this was my first year in recovery. This was 16 years ago. And he was chairing a meeting. And I said I'd moved back from Korea. And he said he was a Korean war vet. For nine years, we became friends. He called me twice a day. He was a grumpy old dude. Nobody liked him. Um, he was inappropriate. He said things that I was like, you can't say that. Um, he was in his 70s and 80s, but I felt this call to just walk with him. He was never married. They make movies around that exact theme that you just, you know, (laughs) and Clint Clint Eastwood often plays that grumpy old character. Um, Yeah, he was never married. He never had kids. He said his mom died at childbirth, and this man was moving to his 80s. And one time he had to go to the hospital for a hernia operation, and he was so scared of the hospital. He lived in the same apartment, 8th and 8th, for 35 years. And... He did the same routine every day, three meetings for recovery, exact same meetings in bed by like 530 p.m., awake at 430 a.m., um, never had cable, only listened to CBC radio. So I took him for this appointment because he was in pain. And I said, I will accompany you. That's a service part of the recovery world I'm in. And he then on that piece of paper put down that I was his only next of kin. Fast forward five years for the first time I don't hear from him twice a day. The second day I don't hear from him and I can't get a hold of him. I call a police check to his apartment. I go there with him. He's in the fetal position in bed and he doesn't want to go in the ambulance. He says he'll only go if I drive him. He gets in the car. I turn on my voice recorder and he says, Jill, the painting of the clouds on the wall opened up and they said, you're wanted in heaven. And then they show that you drive me to the hospital and I never get out. And I'm on the recording like, oh, it's okay, Chuck. Let's just go get this checked out. Like, we probably just need to get something. Get into the ER. Doctor brings me up the x-ray, and he says he has cancer in every single organ and all up his spine. He's like, we should have detected this years ago. Um, He's not leaving the hospital. And I was just like, and I had Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, in my hands. That was the book I was starting to read, and it's all about knowing. And... So I sat there with him. Um, He went from diagnosis to death over four months. He died in my arms. He never went back home. And because he wrote that on the piece of paper four years before, I became the person to make all the end-of-life decisions for him. And that was one of the biggest journeys of my life. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd had the biggest collapse of my life. It was July 2015. Three things happened the first week of July 2015. This is 10 years after I got sober from a big event. And I had this digital platform, Women in Work Boots. It was used across Canada. I was awarded for it. The first and, time I ever knew of you was yeah. that, actually. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so it got hacked by Viagrads and then was firewalled from the 200 schools it was being used in. <laughs> and it suddenly oh, disappeared. I didn't know that story. <laughs> yeah. We had used um, international students as nannies. And so we had... I did that. I've been in Italy and France as a traveling nanny through university. And I wanted that in my house. I wanted people who speak Spanish so I could become more fluent. I wanted people who spoke French so I could Mm. remember all the French I know. And so we did that. And then after eight girls, I said, you know, I'm in this world of stigma stomping with construction. Why don't we get a male from the same agency, early childhood education? Um, These guys have like mountain bikes and hockey on their 
profiles. Like my two sons could shoot 10,000 pucks a day and be okay. And these girls just want to text. <laughs> and, and everyone would be having a great time. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, let's bring this guy in. He was good for a year, but we ended up having to ask him to leave because he had hidden cameras on me. And he had been photographing me without my knowledge in the bathroom and when I was changing in my room. I later found out he had a camera in my bedroom. And this is all the same week of July 2015. And then right. Chuck got diagnosed to death. So suddenly I'm without childcare, without anything that I have associated. And this like spiritual two hand shove had told me to shut down women and work boots multiple times. And I didn't do it. So it was done for me. And it, then I suddenly have my sons full time. And I'm walking this man to the end of his life. So my pictures from those three months are my sons in the hospital in palliative care with him because I'd have to go every day. And until I held him in the Sarsi hospice for his last breath. And that's how I know the soul leaves the body. If you hold somebody in hospice for their last breath, you know the soul leaves the body. And he was unconscious when we transferred him from Peter Lohid to Sarsi. He had a heart attack, actually, and I watched him convulse off the bed. I've never seen somebody have a heart attack and actually look like all I know from a movie of exorcism, like the body was flailing. This was probably end of life stuff as well. But a guy from high school who was in Miss Baxter's class came in as the EMT for the transfer. So I felt OK that Paul was going to be taking him and I would meet them at the hospice. And when we got there, Chuck opened his eyes on the bed. And he said, um, there was a dim lamp beside the bed and there was pot lights. And he said, turn off the light. And then he looked and he said, turn that one on. He hadn't spoken in days. And I'm like, you want the bright light on, like the fluorescent light? And I was just like, just do it. So I did it. And he rolled to the pot light. And he went exactly like he said, the clouds in the picture opened mm -hmm. up and it was so bright. I was driving home past Rocky View Hospital. And I felt this embrace from behind me. And she said, thank you for bringing my baby home. And I hit the curb. <laughs> I actually thought somebody was in the car. And that's how I know their spirit and soul. Because I have felt it. I have heard it. I've seen it. And there is something else. And it's so powerful. And I appreciate the, just the honesty of believe it or not believe it, that was your experience and that's the experience you had. And I, I think that's, thank you for sharing. I can only just connect to how much impact all those things lining up at once. So after that, that feels like more than a two hand shove. That feels like a couple different shoves from a few different directions. What changed in you after that? On April 13th, 2006, I was living in Seoul, South Korea. I was on another geographical cure runaway. I'd graduated from U of C by this point. I'm using cocaine six days a week. I'm working at a rundown pub in Motel Village. There's traffickers that are sitting by the windows of this hexagon pub looking out over this two-story motel. I'm observing that people are coming into the motel, giving them money, and then being told what room to go to. They know I know, so they're slipping me flaps of cocaine to keep quiet. 
So for years, I'm living this double life over at university, studying international development and African studies. I've been to Ghana, I've been to Nigeria, I've been to Egypt on field schools, I've been to France and Costa Rica. I'm studying human trafficking over there. And here I am participating in it here. And a woman came out on a gurney one time, and that was the big change for me, was that um, I watched somebody die. And with that, I decided something needed to change. So I tried treatment a few times. I moved to Korea. I got an amazing job. Everything set up teaching English. And it's a free ride. You know, they pay for your flight. They pay for your room. I was hired for how I look. So I was put in this like prep school. Um, I was told I was hired for how I looked. I was told how to dress. I was told I should get laser to make my skin creamier and wear more makeup and um, all these things. And all the, all the unhealthy things. Yeah. And uh, so I'd come back from there. I, I ran away to Korea to get away from that life there. And I wanted to go somewhere. Drugs were so illegal. Um, but what I didn't know is I didn't know how to just drink because I'd been drinking with cocaine the whole time. And then what else I didn't know was how independent and powerful I thought I was, was actually I'd given everything away. So one Friday night I went out by myself and I didn't come home that Friday night. What I remember is, um, being in a, being in a, bar down in the Itaewon district, which is like the Vegas. It's this melting pot of the teachers, the military, the expats, the diplomats. And I was down there and um, saw these guys in the bar, drinks, got drinks from them. And then I started to feel really weak. I started to feel like GHB, which is the date rape drug. And we used to take it for fun in Calgary as a party drug. We would dose it and we would take it. And you're just free. Um, so I knew it felt like that. So I left the club and I went outside to this alley. I needed some air. I was going to try to get a taxi and I started to fade and I started to fade and I used this brick wall and I just was like, maybe I needed to just sit down and sleep here. Um, and then this car pulled around the corner and it was the guy from inside. And the last thing I remember from that moment was he grabbed me by my shoulders and he laid me down in the back seat of the car. He lifted my legs into the car. I could see it all happening and I couldn't move. And then the door closed and I don't remember. When I woke up, I was in an apartment. I was bound to a chair. I opened my eyes to see a video camera across the room. I'm naked. There's all this stuff around me. And he's sitting beside me. And this is where I realized... um, and Miss Baxter's told me this, and this came back to me in this moment. We're not powerless, but we give our power away. And I wrote that down. And there's step one to a program that says we're powerless and our lives had become unmanageable. And suddenly this all started to connect. I had given my power away thinking I was so independent and could always get myself home. And this time I couldn't get myself home. So he held me for two days um, until. I was able to leave. Um, He got tired and I was looser. Um, It had evolved to just me being physically beat. Um, I found what I could and I left. I didn't have money. I didn't have my wallet. I didn't have my phone. 
I ran outside and a taxi driver picked me up by some grace of God. Um, I call him an earth angel. We couldn't speak to each other. I didn't know what region I was in. I couldn't read the signs. I couldn't tell him my address. Like I was a mess. So because of how I looked and because we were close to the American military base, he thought that I must be American. So he took me back to Border Patrol and he just dropped me off. And they started asking questions and like two men helped me in. And I think they put it together before I did. I was trying to not tell anybody, make this disappear. I didn't yeah. want this to be something. And, uh, and then I ended up signing over that they would deal with it. What I now know is this happened off base. This happened with somebody from base. This was on Korean soil, so this would have to be a Korean thing. I didn't want anyone to know. I was taking this to the grave. I was, I was taking this to the grave. And I thought, I'll just get better. They gave me a social worker. They gave me a checkup. They got me home. And then they told me about AA. And that's where I started going to AA. On the base, I've never drank since. So this incident in my bedroom with the Manny was 10 years after that. And I never dealt with it. So this was the spiritual two-hand shove to like, hey, there's some stuff you've been stuffing. We're going to bring it to a head right now because it was affecting me. You can't move forward with this trauma. Yeah, I'm in a marriage. I'm I'm blocked. I'm sexually blocked. I'm mentally blocked. I'm trying to fix everything myself. I've got two sons that are like 20 months apart. That's hard. Like, I'm not called to be a jimbery sing-song preschool mom. Like, I was actually, I like ran out of all of those events, like trying to fit in. I was like shoot me like if I have to wave (laughs) ribbons and sing songs like shoot me and other people liked it um but I just didn't fit in and then this got to the point where I was like but where do I fit in like these three things so it's 2016 I don't remember it um blackout my ex-husband got us through this is and this is still there's no drinking there's no drugs you've kind of moved past that this is 10 years after yeah, ten years after, and but I didn't still the deal power of that trauma, that un yeah. processed, unrealized trauma, and the physical and mental manifestations of how that anchors into your body, and how much we just—I'm speaking broadly—how much we underestimate that. Oh, just you know, keep calm and carry on, chip chip, you know, stiff upper lip, and all that, all that nonsense. But the amount of deep-rooted scarring, you know, the you know, it's not what's wrong with you; it's what what happened to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's how I looked at this young man. Um, we were out at the house in Shushwap that my ex-husband and his parents have. And there was a pool and I was changing from the pool and it's on 30 acres. And his parents came right away because they were somewhere close. And like they live these values um, to a point that's almost too logical for me. Like it, 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 I didn't understand the feeling part of it because I couldn't understand just the logical part of it. Um, but that is how we exited him. We put him on a bus back to Calgary. He went right to the airport. My mom and brother packed up his room at our house. And we just got through it on that forgiveness, yeah. grace, and love breath piece, even though the work I had to do was mine. Ooh, I really appreciate the power of that statement. The work I had to do was mine. No, not, no one else was going to be able to do that for me. Yeah. So when Chuck died, when the business was taken away, when I'm left to figure out how to be a mother to my kids properly, and I'm at home, like that's that's a toxic tornado of hell for me. Those four things, um, I had to figure it out. 
And that's when my first series of retreats started, the Roots Recovery Retreats that I led okay. for three years out at Emerald Lake. And that's what Owl Seek is now um, part two to because COVID interrupted that a bit. So you made the comment about you led those retreats. Was that part of the, the process for you of the healing and the processing was you know, like to teach us to learn and to share and to engage? And I'm assuming that you had guides or you had support network for yourself while you were also on the journey of supporting and, and helping others, but coming back to that being one of your core centers? You know, I look across my living room at hundreds of books on a shelf and that mm-hmm. became my guide. I struggled to talk mm-hmm. to people. Therapy is expensive. Okay. Therapy is a luxury for the elite. And yeah, that's cool. I appreciate that. Like, how can you at 25 years old, not working, spend $200 an hour on something they tell you will take session, 20 sessions to get through. (laughs) We'll take years. We'll take a lifetime. Yeah. Right. Like that, that's not okay. That's not okay. No, there is a huge barrier and it is socioeconomic and it is, it is dollars equals access and lack of dollars equals again, anyone can, to your point, therapy is is a luxury for the rich. I appreciate that comment. Yeah, we've seen I that even evolve now with ketamine therapies and all the psychedelic therapies that are starting to really get mainstream. They're all incredibly pricey and and block out a whole huge portion of the population. And debate or not debate could potentially benefit, but it doesn't matter because they don't have access anyways because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to that because the people that thought, we see on the street, <laughs> the people we see on the street need conversation and need to be heard about the trauma that impacted from the past. Some they're just in pain. They're just in pain and it's turned into something. So that soul self didn't get nurtured. It's non-denominational. The soul thing I'm talking about is non-denominational and it wasn't heard. It was pushed within and then we make up our own story. So then we start talking funny or we compress it. So then we withdraw or we fuel it with drugs and alcohol because we don't know how to calm down our mind. And then we end up in a certain way. I walked the streets of Victoria Park picking up cigarette butts to re-roll. I walked the streets in Olympic Plaza um, being told I could have drugs if somebody could touch a certain part of my body first. Like, I did awful things just to get it. And, you know, I was in Texas last week, and I left this big event because I was so uncomfortable. I get really uncomfortable in big events. And I went and walked the streets, and then I found this bouncer at this club, and I just talked to him. And he just got out of jail and he just got clean. And um, he was homeless right now, but he got this job two days ago. And I thought, you know, God, thank you that I can sit with billionaires and homeless people in the same day. And the biggest lesson I get is that I know to go walk the street to tell somebody, keep going. Because somebody told me to keep going at some point. And that's the soul work. The soul guided me to another soul to remind them it's possible. The soul sent me to another soul to answer the questions of like, I don't want to go to this program. It's all about God. And I'm like, hey, let's look at that differently then. Because the program works if we just figure out that one word. Let's call it something else. What do you want to call it? Because this journey of healing and in and out of trauma is about changing words. It's about listening differently. You don't get to listen with what the mind's taught you to listen. You listen with your soul self. And then you figure out how it feels. And then when you speak back is a different set of words. Because society has the same set of words, but that soul journey to healing is a different set of words. And that's a higher consciousness set. That's a metaphorical set. The words matter. It's powerful. And the retreat started based on the Mm -hmm. analogy that nothing in the forest lives without the forest dying. So what part of you needs to die off to be that regeneration of new growth? Because 
Oh my God, you that is so powerful. I had a recent experience myself with 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 five MEO. Mm. And it was powerful and I came out of it incredibly sad. And one of the guys said to me, They said, you know, even though a part is no longer serving you, it's still okay to mourn it when it dies. Mm-hmm. And the permission that she gave me in that moment was so powerful because I'm like, oh, this is supposed to be a good thing. Why does it feel so sad? Mm-hmm. Because it still has to die for this, for something new to take its place. The permission or just, and I, I believe so much in sometimes we just don't give ourselves permission to experience things. And sometimes that does come from the outside. You still need to accept it or not. But that permissibility of for this to grow to something new and better or different, that's better, sorry, better in as soon as it's serving you better. I don't want to be, I don't want to use good and bad because that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But giving myself permission to be okay with this part of me dying that I've been carrying around for 49 years and that's okay. And it's no longer serving you. So I really like your, sorry, I just felt like telling, sharing that story around allowing something to die so something else can live. We don't process that very well in our society as we hide from death and run away from it in all its forms. <laughs> and we haven't given permission that grief's not the four days after. Like, we've made this thing that, like, oh, take them food and check in on them and send them a text. And in four days, they're going to pop back and be good. Make the meatloaf? You mean the meatloaf wasn't the answer? (laughs) Meatloaf's not the answer. (laughs) Is it ever the answer? But anyways, that's enough. (laughs) Ask your grandma. She'll say yes. Yeah, you know where I was going with that. I grew up in a small town with church and the curling club were at the core of it. Yeah. So, yeah, not, 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 um, anyways, yeah. (laughs) But what does that mean? You know, it does mean something because the root of where that comes from is hospitality. And hospitality is not about just hosting you. And community. And community, yeah, which is a common union, right? So if we get to a common union, community, the root of the word, and we are able to unite in that this is going to be really fucking hard, um, we'll be better off. But we don't. We're like, hey, make this better in four days and then (laughs) come back to the group. Well, push it down, push it down, which is kind of that old Victorian era. Like there's so many historical nuances to things we carry around that no longer serve us. They probably didn't serve us then, but we just tend to drag it along <laughs> culturally mm-hmm. for way too long. You know, it it has it, it, it passed away, but we just haven't got rid of the body yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are some of your sources of inspiration that you turn to now? And again, I appreciate the bookshelf that's across me. I'm picturing it, the hundred books. Mm-hmm. Is it a certain book? Is it a certain author? Is it a certain yeah. mindset? Or yeah. what, what what what's on your what's on your bookshelf now? What's, on, what's on the top Wayne right corner Dyer. that's getting read? Mm. <laughs> Did you say Carolyn Wayne Carolyn Miss? Yeah, Dr. Wayne, Wayne Dyer, Wayne? Carolyn oh, Miss. Oh my God. I listened to so um, much Wayne Dyer back in the day. Nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Yeah. Well, <laughs> do it again. Um he his yeah, words do, do don't it again. Die. <laughs> Good advice. Do it again. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, it'd be a very was, different set of eyes than the eyes that read it 15 years ago, 100%, and everything connected to it. It was my friend Courtney Ailey who gave me this CD, and it was Staying on the Path. And it's the four-step journey through the, the Jungian theory of these, like, athlete to warrior kind of thing, warrior to athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, I put that in my car, and I listened to it over and over and over. And I recommend everyone listening to this get the one-hour audiobook, Staying on the Path, and just figure out where you are in this because Ah, we're in all of it and we're in one at a time. And we forget that there's all of it when we claws in to the one at a time. And when we try to stay in the one state, um, and it's not like we self-actualize and get to this maturation process and we 
then are there gold star? Yes, come to the club behind the you mean, gate. You, what like do you mean? Well, in. wait a second. You mean it's not done? You mean I don't get to the fifth level of a, of, a, of the fifth ring of a, of, of self awareness and enlightenment, and I'm good, and it's over? No, the spiritual <laughs> two hand shot is going to come back. I play with that a little bit. <laughs> the spiritual what do you mean? I did the work. I did the work. I took the course. Like, why do I have to keep working at this? <laughs> this is what it whispers. You mind fucked that. Now you need to feel it. Oh <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what people miss. They try to logic override everything. And that's why my problem, my pro- program, Owlseek, addresses the problem that people think like, oh, it's who we are or what we do. No, it's not. It's who you are is not what you do. What you do is not who yeah, you are. Good. You better know those two selves. So who you are is the knowing self. What you do is the Owlseek self. And that inner owl, that wisdom, that intuition that turns it to I intuit, are you letting that be fed by a soul source? Are you letting that be fed by by something that's informing you, not you informing it. Um, because when we get too stuck in the logic, we inform Something that's it. informing you without you informing it. That's yeah. such a powerful to unpack. I, I, so you have so many great, like, write the line and then 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 unpack all mm-hmm. that it could mean. So thank you for, I, I love the way you, you, you capture things. Mm. That's the greatest transformation people have working with me is they take away one line. Mm. Um, and, you know, I walked with a 16-year-old girl this weekend. And her parents um, and my, my son and their son are connected. And I walked into their house and it was one of those divine alignments. And I, the mom said, like, everybody asked me this, but what do you do? What, what, what are you? And I'm let like, me, let me put you in a box because that makes it easier for me. And that's, yeah. and that's okay. That's not wrong. <laughs> so if they're wearing a suit, I'm like, consultant. <laughs> and then it's the end of the story. <laughs> The, the, yeah, the, the ability we, to know your audience is also powerful, Joe. I, I appreciate that <laughs> as a marketer. And uh, not about my message; it's about what you're going to be able to receive, and whether I want to be able to then have that door open or not. <laughs> anyway, anyways, and, all and so things. with her, I was like, I take people on this transformational journey, and we know each other from a Christian community. And I said, I'm a little more non-denominational, and I did a theological counseling degree, and my practice is a little more open. And I just work with people, a lot of people in recovery, a lot of people who are confused, a lot of people who've lost a sense of belonging, people who come out of the NHL and have no idea who they are, people who come out of addiction and realize their whole life has been a lie, people who are in a marriage and are like, I didn't even want to be here. Those are who I work with. And I do a practice that is, it's not psychology, because I don't want to align with a theory written by a man. 40 years ago, let's be honest, I don't. And I believe there's more to it, the intuitive knowing, the feeling, the feeling, the mm-hmm. spiritual two-hand shove. More and more people are talking about it, thank God, and there's been pressure and push to like change this space. But- are you feeling that as well? Because that's certainly my sense of it. Mm-hmm. The conversations I'm getting into with people just around the dinner table and Mm-hmm. Whether it's my, people that are talking about microdosing, and I'm just picking on something that mm-hmm. we've never, I've dreamt in a million years, talked about it, but why they're talking about it, not just the microdosing and their curiosity around, mm-hmm. I think there's more. I yeah. think there's more. Yeah, It does feel, but I also recognize that my my own, I tend to be hanging out with people that are having those conversations as well. So is it moving to a critical, I don't want to say critical mass, but is it becoming more mainstream? <laughs> I feel it is. They hear you say that kind of value. Critical mass is so logic. Um, I know, I know. I'm using the words. I'm using the words. Well, I just, a lot of people I deal with wrestle because they live in that logic place, but yet then they have these feels they can't explain. A hundred percent. So then I yeah. would say mm-hmm. like, get out of your own way. Like actually put down everything you think you know and feel into this. You have to listen differently. That is so scary for people, Jill. It's like right now they're like they're baiting, shutting off the the, the audio because they're they're feeling uncomfortable even listening to your words. <laughs> oh yeah, and yeah, you have to really 
make a decision that this is going to be really uncomfortable. And you might not make it for yourself, but somebody will for you. So this girl, Mm -hmm. the parents were like, yeah, we're talking about what she should do for work and her first job and this and that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've done three totally disconnected degrees. So if you ever want to talk about finding your path. And she spins around on this chair. And she looks at me and she's like, she's a soul-knowing angel girl. Like that kind of red hair that like I've always envied, that just that soft soul south. And they tell me that she's been to like 20 doctors and on all these prescriptions and medications. And her story is that she's had anxiety since she's out of the womb. And I'm listening to words. I'm like, well, what are you telling yourself you're believing? Um, and I asked the mom, I'm like, is that true? And she's like, no, I didn't feel that till she was 12. I'm like, OK, so now we've made shit up. And we all do this, by the way. Um, but I was really taken that we create like, stories. Our brains can't help but create stories to try to, to try and reconcile things, right? We're story, we're meaning creating machines, accurate or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then we like close the door, put the lock on it, and make sure that it stays like well, because then we can prescribe it something and right? then we can get it <laughs> covered by our benefits. But there's a whole yeah. there's a whole infrastructure that supports that model. <laughs> so they told me they've spent thousands, you know, on doctors and specialists, and she's been in and out of the hospital, and every single person has the same thing. We don't know what's wrong. And then I go back to Wayne Dyer, and he says there's a spiritual solution for every problem. There's a spiritual solution for every problem. And I start to wonder, okay, let's break this down. So we talk. We end up sitting for 90 minutes and talking. And I'm always scared to open myself in these communities. My kids go to a private Christian school, and, like, I am, I don't, like, some people don't want me there because uh, of the divorce that my ex-husband's living with another woman unmarried. We had to challenge us. I had to have the bylaws changed after 25 years. Oh, I have a lot of good friends that went to some of those private Christian schools. And then I've watched them now unpack that for the good part of their, their late twenties and early thirties, my wife and some of her close friends being in amongst that. So I've had a window seat to the Christian, the Christian private school environments. So that's not the spiritual <sighs> solution. Anyways, that's another one. Right? We don't want to be careful. That's yeah, not uh, the spiritual yeah. solution. So if you're trying to oh. force the same thing over and over, whether it's pathology, whether it's psychology, whether it's spirituality, and it's not working, then you need permission to open to something else. So we had a conversation and I said, let's just, I want to go for a walk with her. And so she came over, we went for a walk and I started asking things. And when I said fear, she grabbed her gut with her hand, grabbed her gut. And I said, do you, do you feel what you've been feeling, what you've been going to the hospital for when I say that word? And then I said, how about fear of death? And she started crying. And mom had just come through a cancer journey that they didn't think she was going to make it. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm now putting together, like, you have internalized this into the gut. So you want to talk about the gut brain? Yeah, it's probably there. Do I believe the science of it? No, not entirely. Do I care? No. Does it matter? No. Um, Because (laughs) we will then dive into, like, trying to figure it out and make science of it. Like, who fucking cares? Just feel it. So you feel it in your gut. Okay, let's dive into that. are you scared you're going to lose your mom again? Tears. Okay. And then this like, stop the tears, like make sure I look okay. And I'm like, and that's where you're stuffing it. That's where it shuts off the flow. So we went to the river and down here, I back onto fish Creek, there's a beaver dam. And I take people there all the time because I need them to see that in this ecosystem, the dam is important and it has purpose, but it also causes blockage and flooding and backflow. and Seasonally, it's important. And I use all of these metaphors that are science to talk about um, and, and, and ex- experiential as well. <laughs> yeah. And so 
you know, she had a breakthrough with that. Um, no, I'm not a hands-on miraculous healer. No, but I will give you something else to think about. And I will change the language you're using. And I will ask you to write about it for a while. And I, mm-hmm. I, I will ask you to, to channel write and tune in and listen. And 90% of people are like, I don't want to. I can't do it for more than a minute. Okay. Let's do it then. <laughs> like, I'll sit beside you. Um, and that's what most of this is. So I found this healing myself walking in Fish Creek after all the deaths in 2015, 2016. All I could do was take the kids to the forest because, like, that's all I could handle was, like, that they can be out of control here and I'll be fine. Um, then I started watching the patterns. Then I wondered if a couple people would want to come on a retreat with me. I put the first one up and 16 people it sold out. So did the next 10. and. Then I started bringing corporate teams on them and teams were having massive transformation. So I'll seek is the bounce off from that and incorporating this recovery language, which I was only connecting it to PTSD, um, sex assault, rape, kidnapping, those pieces. I was, people were whispering like, can I come? I've had cancer. Can I come? Um, I've just had this happen. And I was like, and then men, I made them women only. And then men were like, well, are you going to do them for men? And I sat and was like, I can't do that. Those need to be led by a man. But I'm changing that now. I do believe I'm called for that now. What a powerful journey. I love the, well, why I was looking forward to having this conversation, your honesty and your willingness to just talk about it. But also you've spent a lot of time, and I've said that people ask me, who makes the best guests? I'm not saying good guests or bad guests. I love, I fall in love with all my guests. So I'm mm-hmm. a bad, I'm a bad judge. That's why I do it. Cause I get to have this amazing conversation, but the individuals who spent the most time thinking about their thoughts and mm-hmm. that can show up in different ways. I often find those make for the most interesting conversations because we all have these things that push us and pull us and taking the time to understand them and break down the simplicity and yet the complexity under it. But the most powerful lessons I've always learned, whether it was through psychedelics or through some of those like moments. And I just used psychedelics because those are the ones that kind of hit you or have hit me that way. The lesson was always intrinsically simple. How I then unfurled it and unrolled it into my life was the interesting part, but the lesson itself was never that complicated. (laughs) The story I told about it, that was a whole other thing (laughs) and retelling that and recasting that story. So listening to you talk about your journey uh, where where are you back to the journals, uh, the 65 journals since eight years old and kind of putting out this body of work? How, where is that in terms of, could I access this body of work now? Because this is the coming together of this journey that I'm talking about yeah. right now over how many years, right? <laughs> so I'm working on the book right now. It's gone to first draft and I've had to change it a couple of times because of how this connection came to me. So I thought I was going to write this little book knowings and it's going to be the spiritual guide but then Owl Seek started to drop, and I could not deny that they had to be interconnected. But then I was like, am I writing a workbook? Am I writing a guide? Am I writing, like, do people want a workbook in a novel? Is it even what the like- hell am I working on here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I had a great- Back to logical and linear. Sooner or later, you've got to kind of pick a track and then write to it and, get, yeah. and kind of get it done and then get onto whatever the next one is, which I'm assuming is awaiting already. <laughs> yeah. So- This came out as the book, which goes through the inspiration story of what happened to me. Um, I wish I could say rape was part of my story one time. It wasn't. Like, I I was involved in organized crime. I was being held to keep things quiet. You know, I was in a desperate state of exchanging and transactional lifestyle to just feel okay. Um, So the first part's the inspiring part of living through that. 
Okay. The second part is the advisory part of turning PTSD into post-traumatic growth. And I use the stories of hundreds sure. of people who've worked with me who've experienced this through shifting the way they think and giving themselves permission to invite in new words or put down the religion. You can pick it back up later. You can take what you like from it and move on. But you really have to analyze, like, where did this come from? Who told me this? Well, and what aspects are serving me and what are not, right? Yeah. Because you can, you, absolutely. Let's leave, you know, it's funny. I used to be a personal trainer. In that role, you quickly realize it's very, it's rarely about fitness. <laughs> it's right. about the individual. And yeah. there was this vestibule at the gym. And I'd always say when people walk in between the two doors, I say, leave all your baggage there. And then mm-hmm. just pick up the pieces you want when you leave. Right. Because a physical exertion is a great way to kind of recycle the brain and throw some new chemicals in there. Yeah. And that was always because I had a few, oh, I have this going on, that going. I said, great, let's walk over. And we physically walk to the door and we said, let's just put it here. We're not throwing it out. You can pick it up later, but just pick up the bags you want. And it, I don't know where that came from, but it was funny. It became part of my part of my thing and <laughs> use it with the same clients. And they did say, you know, I pick up a lot less when I leave than what I drop off when I come in. <laughs> I live, 20 years ago, I live a lot in silence. I live a lot in silence and my iTunes is like embarrassing. Like there's like 10 songs from the last 24 years that I have on it. Right. And, and then I listen to like insanely inappropriate hip hop when I'm driving around. Um, because that's just like what I like. Of course you do Jill, because you are an interesting individual. <laughs> <laughs> and on, um, there's this song, Erica Badu, bag lady, bag lady, okay. you've got too much stuff. And it's like her pushing a shopping cart around. That song will play in my head when I know I'm not well. And it's like this mm. tune from Spirit oh, that's like, like that. yeah. So, and I'll literally be like, work bag, gym bag, like purse, purse for the night, Lara, if I'm going after work. And like I'm hanging onto four bags on my arms. And <sighs> yep. it's the person carrying in all the groceries by themselves, not doing multiple trips. Like, bag lady, you got too much stuff. Um, that's how I know. I love that. That's your theme song. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> or, sorry. One, one of your, one of your indicators, external indicators. <laughs> that's, and that's the advisory part. Like you've got to list spirit yeah. will give you messages for your pivots in and through other people in and through music in and through signage in and through billboards in and through, um, strangers walking and having a conversation and you overhear something. You're like, what? Um, yeah, that's, that's- so I ask for signs. And this, this next part of the book is disruption. And it's on like, go disrupt your life. Go disrupt what you thought you were supposed to do. Like, go be that. Um, not a rebel, not reckless, like not irresponsible, but like, what are you not doing that you know you need to do? Yeah. And that's what I bring people on retreats for now. So I've been going down to the Crow's Nest Pass and I started to get this imagery of when all the leaves fall, those nests are left high in the trees. So my mastermind is called The Nest. The retreats are called The Nest because you need to get to a higher perspective in and by yourself to look at the path ahead. And you can't do it seeing the forest for the trees. Um, you must get... It all comes back to the forest. Nature. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is the whole metaphor written through the book and the program. This ties it all together. There's three parts. There's three parts people can dive into their own story, advise themselves what they want to do, and then figure out what... I mean, I use disruption so lightly. I'm not here to like blow up industries or but we do have problems you're stuck in some religious story like the joke and we need to disrupt our patterns the patterns yeah. that are no longer serving us absolutely and you get so you can't see that you can't see the label when you're inside the bottle it's something we joke at clairmotive all the time so mm. many companies are that you know but as in humans the mm. same i like that <laughs> and we've constructed that bottle and man we've put two-way mirrors and we've glassed it in and we we think we see everything but we're not, we don't <laughs> um 
So simple, someone listens to this. I always love to be, I'm always action oriented. Or mm-hmm. if you are curious and people want mm-hmm. to learn more, can they come and take a retreat with you? Like when's your next retreat? Let's, I'm also about blatantly pitching the cool stuff you've got going on next. <laughs> so I will be putting those out soon on Aliseek. Okay. I'm, um, Aliseek is where they would find it? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And aliseek.ca. Um, I'm moving Amazing. into more keynote speaking as well. I saw that on your LinkedIn. Yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. Mm. And such a, I, great, such a great way to, to amplify the message. <laughs> yeah. And I really, really, really needed to figure out how to not just tell the trauma story. And that's what this group impact 11 taught me was how to turn it into an inspirational advisory disruptive yeah. model. And so I just went down there to <laughs> Texas with them. Todd Hirsch from Calgary was in the room and we'd like, it was right. so Todd's cool awesome. to see yeah, I've somebody. Had on, I've had him on the show before. Yeah. He's great. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were down there and I met the most incredible people. Um, who are telling stories of their lives, like incredible stories. And I really learned. So the next part is to actually like stand in these movements I'm talking about, what I didn't do before, what we started yeah. with. I didn't. Well, you weren't, that, you weren't ready. Yeah. You weren't ready. Or, you yeah. Know. Well, it's ultimately the hero's journey, right? Which is exactly mm. how we, I try to orchestrate these episodes. Introduce the character. What did they overcome? But as humans, we need that. We need the resolution part at the end to, f- to give us the inspiration or the drive to go forward just from like storytelling 101. Mm-hmm. But when that's about your story, that's mm-hmm. a really cathartic process. Like I really appreciate Oh yeah, just tell the happy ending. I'm like, well, I'm still writing it. I don't, what do you mean happy? End? I'm still in it. And the well, permission to even say that can be a really, yeah. it can be tricky for sure. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway is that while psychology is not accessible to everyone, the forest is. And you can find Ugh. the pattern of what little, you need little, to- A little uh, forest bathing, little Shinruku. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and find the pattern of what you need to dive into with your therapist before you get there. Like this is about pre-work for me. Mm, um, because like the biggest barrier I found mm. with people who come to me who are so fucking broken at this point and they don't trust traditional therapy, they don't trust their doctors, they don't trust pills, and they might need all three, is because they were given one at a time, not it united, and it mm. didn't come with an actionable plan towards goals, towards their dreams. You mean take so, this and call me in the morning isn't the answer? Yeah, take this, call me in the morning. Then maybe you need to work with a life coach. So go drop six grand on them and then come in for therapy. That They're going to tell you it's going to be 20 sessions to get to the bottom of it. Um, you should probably lose 40 pounds. So go get a trainer and starve yourself too. Like you'll go crazy trying to figure it out by yourself. So what is the thing? So take a walk, listen for it to drop. Figure out where the tears are coming from. Ms. Baxter told me tears are the thank you notes of the soul. Eyes are the windows to the soul. With no breath, there is no sight, right? So that to me brings back that proof for myself. And I, I just listened to this rabbi talk about this Old Testament notion that it is breath and it's written in there and he was challenging it too. And I was like, yes, because <laughs> I was in this women's group and they were like, no, I don't think it's that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> It's that. <laughs> yeah, like, no, I, it. I guess I have to go. Um. <laughs> <laughs> these are not my, these are not my people and that's okay. Yeah. We will not fault them, but it doesn't mean we have to spend time with them. <laughs> they don't so have to watch be wrong, the body but, uh, responses yeah, yeah. and uh, where is that pain uh, coming? Have, our intuition is so powerful and we've been trained oh. to ignore it. It went out mm-hmm. with the, uh, I, I believe this to my core. It went out with the wiping out of Mary Magdalene and the, labeling of witches thereafter anyone <laughs> who wanted yeah. to tune back into it was killed off thank god we're finding the first seven pages of her gospel in the Nag Hammadi desert right they're coming up in clay jars because they were 
they had to be destroyed. And that whole thing is about knowing. That whole thing is about everyone being able to access it, not in and through this structure of church. That's a powerful. Have you read The Immortality Key? No. It's a monster book on one one guy's thesis. Uh, he's a lawyer from Brown, uh, studied classical Greek. And he goes on like a quest and travels all over Greece, travels all over the Mediterranean to prove that the role that psychedelics played in early awareness in mm. Christian in, in Christian religion and goes down a deep rabbit hole of mm-hmm. the dark area ages and why the persecution of witches, primarily women as sorceress who were stewarding this process of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to go to the church to get access to God. You could get access to God on your own. And the role, his whole thesis that psychedelics, uh, he goes, as even an, he was a non-psychedelic user, he just said, I found too many indications that there's something else at play here that's been squashed for how many hundreds of years and the atrocities that were perpetrated in that name. I just read it recently as a recommend from a friend who's like, you want to blow your mind? And it's a read for sure. It's a, it's a, like more of a textbook than it is. It's not a novel. I like and <laughs> the power that it unearthed and just the perspective it gave me around kind of like exactly what you just said, Mary Magdalene and the role that yeah. she played. And he, it's a really powerful book. If you're, if you're curious, which I know you are inherently, uh, it's a heavy read though. In the middle, you're just like, okay, I believe you just get there. And he just keeps digging and researching and digging and researching. And I, I appreciated the, the, the approach he took. Uh, That's how I feel about fingerprints of the gods from Graham Hancock. And he's got a series yeah. now on Netflix that he talks about it. And he's like the archeologist who everyone wants to push out because he doesn't align with the initial theories. Well, fuck the initial theories. Like, can we decide that all of this baseline stuff that we're bouncing off of had something else before it and we should check it out? Like, Come on, how many things do we now go today that's so long ago, like just neuroscience and the, the neuroplasticity of the brain, the people that originally promoted those ideas were thrown out for like heresy. And that was like 40 years ago. And now we accept it as, as like, so I don't know. When, whenever there's somebody who's pitching a bit of a different story and everyone wants to have them expelled, I'm usually going to look twice at what they're talking about. <laughs> the mm-hmm. whole system goes in fear, back to mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. And it goes, oh my God, you're, you're, you're threatening our whole, I think it was Charles, Carl Rook, who wrote the original, The Road to Eleus- Eleusis, which was the original book. And he actually lost his uh, tenure at uh, Harvard. He was kicked out. And so this gentleman, I think that's who he, he did been exposed to. But it was exactly his persecution in the medical system or in the uh, education system. Yeah. Like, how dare you present an idea that might be different than what we've all just happened to agree upon was true. <laughs> yeah, like Bruce Byron, Biology of Belief yeah. on like actually oh, what DNA so good. is. So yeah, good. so like lost his tenureship. Parker J. Palmer, let your life speak. Yeah. Courage to teach, lost his tenureship. Like we need to be following these people who lose because we need to remind ourselves that the system of university is a controlled system. Owl seek method control is the same as knowing sphere. So it's fear-based. So are you aligning with things that are fear-based? The university, the economy of the university, the elitist specialness of universities. Like, yes. Do I hope yeah. my doctor goes to university? For sure. Do I, I know. care it, that it's, like, you have to balance it out, but you yeah. have to look at everything from a critical. And I love what you said. Like, how does that feel for you? Where does that land? Does that feel right? Does that feel like off does that feel like somehow you're holding yourself now against something that doesn't feel natural. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe, it, maybe it isn't for you. <laughs> whatever, whatever so that the, thing, the that first exercise, if you work with me or come to the retreats is I give you a sheet and I say, what's the lie? That's all it says. We're like, what? Hmm. Nothing. I'm like, what's the lie? And for men, men who are in the tech space, men who run companies, it's usually that I'm okay. Of course. And then layered quickly underneath by imposter syndrome and all the things that I might be found out for not being. <laughs> and then at the end, we go, what's the truth? How do you want to rewrite this? 
Um, and everything in working mm, with me at the retreats great. is about rewriting. So I believe you must see the opposite side. So words are so important that if you're in this story um, that I've had anxiety from the womb or whatever, um, what's the other side of that? How can we change that to something? Um, yeah, something else. But well, yeah, the, what, what the, also the just the poss- the, bil- the allowance of possibilities. What would it be like if you didn't? Oh well, well, that would be pretty amazing. Okay, well, let's explore that a little bit and just allowing the mind to go down that different road. That's and an cause and Tony, effect. Tony I use Robbins, that all the time. NLP one hundred and one stuff, mm-hmm. which was NLP oh, chill. Before, so interesting. Was oh my god, I love I love this. <laughs> now we're really getting into it, and we're time we're a little bit of tussle back and forth. It's so it's so fun. I think I think I see a part two coming. That's what I really think. Ah, I'd or, love or to. I'm just going to come to one of your retreats and and, and, and talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and just thanks for, you know, trusting and feeling comfortable and feeling safe in this environment. I just, certainly what I try to create and do my best job, but people show up with what they show up with. And I respect that. I love how honest you were about your story. And I really think that I took a lot away from it and a lot of, I got a lot of things to think about. You've, 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 you've pulled on quite a few threads. So thank you for that. And that's my hope of anyone who listens to these episodes that they walk away going, huh? Hmm. I wonder dot, dot, dot. If they did that, then it was a great episode. <laughs> safe space to think differently. That's what I'm grateful for. Space, safe space to speak differently. That's what I was most excited about. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, owlseek.ca, that's mm-hmm. the best place to, for people to get a hold of you? Yeah. What if the corporate people would like to reach out about consulting? Should they go on LinkedIn? Because that's where corporate people go. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I can't help but joke. It's my own world, but I, I appreciate the humor of it. <laughs> yes, I'm talking. I'm using LinkedIn words like burnout. So everybody's okay with burnout. Um, there can't possibly be something wrong with you, but there, you could be burning out. So we can open the door by talking about burnout. I call Alice Seek retreat from burnout. So it's okay. We can take our group on a retreat because... Uh, we can, we, that'll fix that's this. That's safe now. Yeah, it wasn't well, even that long ago. So that's only new. So I do yeah. appreciate, I work in marketing. Who's your ideal customer profile and what messaging is going to resonate and be okay. Permissibility. What's going to be okay with them. But I, I love the um, tongue in cheek you put to it all though. <laughs> <laughs> We're still going to laugh about it when we realize, oh, this is, you just called it this. Yes. Cause we got you in the room. So now we can actually work on some real things. Yeah. Was that a spiritual two hand shove? I feel naked. Yes. Yeah. Here we are. Is there is there a spiritual <laughs> kick in the ass? I think there is as well, but that's a different. Oh yeah. I, I, I won't. Yeah, I won't take your. I like the two hand shot. I, I don't need to change it. But sometimes I felt that the kick in the ass is what I've actually what I've gotten along these journeys. <laughs> yeah. Either way, you're down. <laughs> yes. That's touche. Jill, thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure getting to know you a little bit more and having a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you.